Good morning. I bring you greetings from Missouri. It is uh, wonderful to think about the fact that even though I've never met most of you, we all are members of the same body of Christ and we're brothers and sisters. We share the same faith, the same Lord, the same baptism, the same God and Father of all. And so I'm your brother from another mother, even though we've, uh, we've never met. It's good to be with you this morning. You know, my church, uh, uh, Christ our King in Columbia, Missouri, we have lots of parties and celebrations and feasts. We like to celebrate, get together, celebrate our Savior, celebrate our city, celebrate each other. And when we do that, we invite all kinds of people to come and be a part of those celebrations as a way to, to bring people into the life-giving, spirit-filled community of Christ. Uh, and so there are people that come to our parties on a regular basis, even though they've never come to a church service. There's... Um, there's one particular woman that I'm thinking of in her family. Uh, her husband is colleagues with one of our church members in, at the university, and the wife is colleagues with the daughter of one of our pastors. She's a pediatric nurse. And they come to everything that we have, like party-wise. Uh, and they're always asking, when's your next event? You know. So we had an Easter feast this Easter on April 1st, and after the church service we had a dinner and an Easter egg hunt, and we encourage our folks to invite people to come, even if they... They didn't want to come to church. So this family came, and they ate, and they, their daughter participated in the egg hunt, and it was a great time. Uh, the, the mom, the wife, sent a text message to the, to, the, to the woman who had invited them from our church and said she just wanted to thank her for how welcoming and hospitable we are as a church body, how, how much they appreciate it. And I say all this not to brag on our church, but to say this. And then she followed it with, I wonder what they would think if, if they knew I was an atheist. I wonder if they would hate me because I'm an atheist. This woman doesn't have any faith at all. And, you know, of course, some of us, not of course, but some of us do know that, that she is. And we love her all the same and welcome her all the same. But there is this question, isn't there? In the church, is the church a safe place for people that don't believe? Is the church a safe place for people who question their faith, who have doubts? You know, this person, I think she's not thinking something that's abnormal. I think a lot of people think that the church is not a safe place. That the church is not a welcoming place for people who have doubts, for people who are broken, for people who question, for people even that don't have any faith at all. And when I saw that text message, I just wanted to go to her and say this woman's name and tell her, you are so welcome here and we love you. And we want to walk with you in this. You're questioning and you're, uh, you're doubting and, and whatever it is that you're doing, we want to welcome you and be a part of that. You know, in fact, the church is a place like that. The church is intended to be a place where people can have their doubts and their questions and even lack of faith and be welcomed into it. In fact, Christ founded the church to be that. The, very, the second ever worship service that ever happened, Jesus made it a point of that day to say that people who doubt are welcome. People who question are welcome. And I want to offer them my life-giving presence help overcome their wounds. This is, the, this is the scripture we're going to read today. It says this very thing. I want to invite you, if you want to, uh, the text is in your bulletin, um, but it's also on page 906 of your pew Bible. It's John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Let's hear how Jesus founded the church to be welcoming to people who doubt. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that's Easter Sunday, he's talking about, 
the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Therein is the reading of God's word. You know, we live in a doubting generation. Increasingly, people in our society are questioning and doubting the faith that uh, they've been raised in. There's been a lot of studies done on this and articles written in various publications and talking about this, this issue of people uh, becoming irreligious or saying that they have no religion. In fact, the largest demographic, uh, the largest religious demographic in our country now is called the nuns. And I'm not speaking about women who join a convent and take vows of celibacy. Um, the nuns are people who, when they're asked what religion they are, they say, none. I'm no religion. I don't identify myself with any religion. And now that group of people is the largest group in our country. 34% of people would say that they have no religion. But the interesting thing about this group is this group is not settled in, in this nunness. Uh, there's a lot of volatility amongst uh, people as they are really wrestling with what they believe. It's not that they have no faith. They, they've experienced brokenness, they've experienced loss, and they're questioning. And so they are wrestling with the, the facts of Jesus, the claims of Christ and the church. Interesting thing is that there's a, there's a high level of people who switch from being no religion to coming back to the church. In fact, one study showed that People that said in 2010 that they had no religion, 20% of them have come back to the Christian church. That's a big number. What that suggests is that there is a great opportunity for the church to be a welcoming place for people who are questioning, who have been hurt and doubting. It also suggests to us 
uh, uh, that we need to also be honest with ourselves about our own doubts and fears as we reach out to others. You know, one study, uh, one researcher describing folks that describe themselves as none, no religion, they, he called them a collection of people, including many who have been hurt, run over, or offended by the church, or they know someone who was. That's who these people are. Now, if only there was a text in the Bible that addresses people who have been hurt, who are broken, and who are doubting, and what Jesus offers them. Well, we read that today. There is such a text. I think this is what this text is about. This text that we read today is about good news for people who are struggling, people who are questioning, people who are doubting, and it says to them, you are welcome. Jesus says, you are welcome in my church. This is good news. You know, oftentimes when we come to a text or, or any kind of uh, literature, we, we, we might expect to find the, the, the main theme at the beginning. That's how it works in modern, uh, modern, modern writing. We expect to find a thesis statement right up front, and we don't want to know what it's about. Well, ancient texts aren't that way. In ancient texts, the, uh, the purpose statement is often at the end. Okay, And that's what we see here at the end of this passage. That's why I kept reading In verse 30, we find the purpose, not only of the Gospel of John, but also of the passage that we read today. This is the reason why John is writing. He said Jesus did all sorts of things and said all sorts of things that we didn't put in this Gospel. Because the point of the Gospel is not to just be a catalog of all the stuff that Jesus did and said. He said we put the stuff that we put into this Gospel for the reason, in verse 31, that you may believe that you may trust that Jesus is the anointed Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. This story that we read today is in the Bible so that we would trust Jesus and that we would have life. That's why it's there. Jesus wants to give us life. He wants to look into our, our, our own lives and our families, our relationships, and he wants to breathe life into it like he breathed life into these disciples In this story today, Jesus wants to breathe life into your life this morning. That's what this is all about. As we look at this passage, we see a story of those who are broken and doubting. And if you've heard the story of Doubting Thomas before, we may have some preconceived notions. If you've never heard this story of Doubting Thomas, then that's good because you get to come at it with fresh eyes. But I want to invite those of us who have heard the story before to try to forget maybe what we thought about it, and come to the story with some fresh eyes. And if we come to the story with fresh eyes, what we see is that all the disciples were broken and doubting and hurting. Not just Thomas, they all were. What we find here at the beginning of the passage, beginning in verse 19, is that all the disciples were gathered and they had the door locked because they were afraid. You know, they are afraid, they are doubting, they are fearful. Earlier that morning... Some women were at the tomb. Peter and John had a race that John points out that he won. He wants to make sure we know that he beat Peter for some reason. It's one of those oddities. But they found an empty tomb. Jesus was not there. And even though they have these facts about the resurrection, they still are struggling to believe it. We can, we can understand that. They have experienced a great deal of trauma. Their best friend, their leader, their teacher, who they walked with for three years, they had this intimate community. It's almost like being at college together 
going to summer camp or something. They had this really, really great experience walking with one another, and their leader, their best friend, has been tortured and killed. This is a depth of trauma that they have experienced. And so what we find is that the disciples are afraid, and they are doubting, and they are questioning. This is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. The first disciples were doing this. Let's look at the story. It says that they had the door locked because they were afraid. So we know they were afraid. Jesus comes and says to them, peace be with you. He's initiating the Sunday liturgy. This is a worship gathering. This is the same room that they gathered at for the Last Supper, the same room that they gathered at for Pentecost. This is the the room they gathered in for worship in the early days of the church. Jesus came among them. And I want you to look and see what he did. He showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad. They needed to see that too. We often miss that in their text. The disciples were afraid and they were doubting, and they needed to see the wounds of Christ as well. So there is not a real significant difference between those disciples and Thomas. The difference, and I think this is really the only difference, between the other disciples and Thomas is that Thomas is the kind of person that when he experiences trauma, when he experiences something that really hurt, he needs to get away. You know? You know what that's like? You just get away, get by yourself, grieve, gather your thoughts. Thomas was one of the disciples. He had experienced the loss of his best friend too. And Thomas just had to get away and struggle and wrestle with his questions, with his doubting and with his hurt. This is really the only difference between him and the other disciples is that he needed to to take some time away. You know, I I really resonate with this personally. I don't know if you do. And when you get this shock, this trauma that happens, kind of, you know, the disciples that were there on Easter Sunday night, they're the kind of people who want to be with other people when they experience trauma. Thomas was the kind of person that wants to be away. I tend to do that. I've done that in my own life. and I had a period in my life where I wandered away because of some of the things I experienced. And I had a time of questioning. I think many of us have done this. If not all, had a time where we wandered and we, we went away to wrestle with our questions and our doubts and our, our hurt. You know, this, is, this is the only difference between Thomas and the other disciples is that he needed some time away. So what happens in the story is that the disciples, they know Thomas is away. Maybe they know he has this proclivity to, to kind of go away, to heal. And they go to him and they say, look, it's real. We've seen the Lord. And of course, Thomas demands scientific proof. He says, unless I see these wounds, unless I touch them, I'll never believe. And this is where he gets the name Doubting Thomas, if you've ever heard the name Doubting Thomas. But remember, the disciples, they didn't believe until they saw as well. I mean, it was the same for them. So Thomas says, unless I see it too, I'll never believe. But I want you to see, I want you to look and see what Jesus offers to those who doubt, uh, to those who question, uh, to those who are hurting. What we find in verse 24, or sorry, in verse 26, it says eight days later. Now that number may seem a little confusing, but it's inclusive of Easter Sunday. So it's the next Sunday, the very next Sunday, the second church service of the church, they're gathered again inside, and Thomas was with them. 
He decided he wanted to come back. He decided he wanted to check things out. You know, and we can, we, at least I can resonate with Thomas because it's almost as if he's saying, as he's thinking to himself, you know, I really want to believe this. I want to believe that it's true, but I don't want to be hurt again. I don't want to be, if this is not true and I, and I let myself hope, I don't want to be let down. I will be devastated if it's not really true. And so we can understand why he has this reticence. But he decides, I'm going to show, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to see what happens. Maybe some of you are here today to see what happens. But what happened? What happened is, is Jesus showed up again. And, and this is where we find the beauty of the good news of the gospel for us. Because you may, you may be like our, the friend that I described to you at the beginning, the friend who, who believed that Christians would react negatively to her if they knew that she was an atheist. Maybe you think that Jesus... Uh, that the natural reaction to someone who's been doubting and someone who skipped church would be that Jesus would show up and say, Thomas, why did you doubt me? Why did you skip church, you know? That's not the way Jesus reacts at all. Jesus does not castigate Thomas. He does not call him to the carpet. He says again, peace be with you. And then he says, Thomas, come here. I'm going to give you what you asked for. And he says so gently, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This is a beautiful moment. This is, this is such a beautiful, gracious moment. I love how St. Augustine put it. St. Augustine was a, was a 5th century African church father. And there's a quote on the front of your bulletin if you want to look there. Augustine commenting on this story. It's the one at the bottom. He said, the Lord could have risen without any vestige of a wound. In other words, we believe when we're resurrected that if we have disabilities, if we have wounds and scars, that they'll be healed. This is part of what we believe in the resurrection, that we'll have glorified bodies. And so Augustine said, the Lord could have risen without any vestige of a wound, but He kept the scars. Jesus kept his scars so that they might be touched by the doubting and the wounds of our hearts be healed. That's beautiful. Jesus kept his scars for you. He didn't have to keep his scars. He didn't have to keep his wounds. But he did so that he could be touched by the doubting and the wounds of our hearts be healed. This is what is going on with this beautiful interaction between Thomas and Jesus. Jesus is saying, look, I want you to be healed of your wounds. I want you to be healed of your hurts because I was wounded so that you could be healed. I was bruised so that you could be healed. And so he offers his very self to Thomas. He offers his very life-giving presence. And I want you to look with me at the dignity that is offered to Thomas. Well, this confession that we find in verse 28 is something that no one has ever said yet. Of all the things that Peter has said, he's confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah. No one has ever said what Thomas is about to say. And to the doubting Thomas, that Thomas who skipped church, that Thomas who couldn't 
bring himself to be gathered with the disciples on Easter Sunday of all Sundays to skip church. To him is given the dignity because he was honest and he wrestled with his doubts and the Lord came and he gave him faith. To him is given this confession, my Lord and my God. That is amazing. It's amazing that Thomas would be given that dignity to be the first person to confess this, that Jesus Christ is God. The very words that we say when we profess the words of the creed today. This is the good news that Jesus offers to all of us. This is the good news that he offers to all of us who are hurt, who are broken. And I want to invite you to know that in the church, there is a room for your doubts. There is room for your questions. And and the very thing that Jesus offers is himself. Now, you may wonder, well, Jesus didn't show up in our room today like he did on those first two weeks. Jesus didn't pop himself in the middle of this room. Did anybody see him? No, he didn't, not physically at least. But the point of these stories, these post-resurrection stories, is to tell God's people that Jesus is now going to be present in a different way. This is the point of a lot of these stories. I'm going to be present with you, but it's going to be in a different way. So in the Gospel of Luke, we have this beautiful story in the Gospel of Luke about two disciples on Easter Sunday. They're walking on this road to a village called Emmaus, and they're very sad because Jesus had died. And this man that they don't even recognize comes in with them and begins to walk with them. And just give you a little hint, it was Jesus. It was Jesus who was walking. But Jesus made it so they couldn't recognize him. So he walked with them and he said, why are you guys sad? And they were like, hey, you're the only guy in Jerusalem who didn't know what happened this weekend? And he said, no, tell me. He's very coy. You know? So they tell him, and, and he gives them this two-hour-long Bible study sermon, the best, probably the best Bible study they've ever been given in the history of humanity. And when they get to Emmaus, when they get to Emmaus, they still don't recognize him. They still don't see him, and they still don't believe until he breaks bread. And then their eyes are open, and Jesus disappears. And the point of that story is to say that now in the resurrection, Jesus is going to be present with his people in a different way. In that story, it means sacramentally. In the Lord's Supper, he's going to be present in a different way. Not physically, but in a different way. Well, in the Gospel of John, it's the same idea, except for John is emphasizing that Jesus is going to now be present by his people, the spirit-filled gathering of his disciples. is how he is going to be present now. This is why in the story, Jesus breathes on them and they receive the Spirit. And so Jesus is going to be present by the Spirit-filled community of faith. And so the takeaway for us is that we are called, because Jesus is probably not going to show up at church today, physically. But he is here by faith. He is here spiritually. He is going to be here sacramentally. He will show up. He says, whatever two or three of you are gathered, I will be with you. How does he keep that promise? Well, he keeps it because you are the hands and feet of Christ. You all are the body of Christ. And it is our job as the church to be Christ for each other and be Christ for those who are outside the church who are doubting, as well as people who are inside the church who are doubting. This is why we keep our wounds. We can go to people and we say, look, I see your wounds. I have some too. Look at mine. 
This is how I've wrestled with my wounds. This is how I've wrestled with my doubts. It is our job to be Christ's presence for people. Inside the church, outside the church, before the watching world. So that people who doubt, people that have questions, and people that, have, that want to believe can have an opportunity to wrestle with their faith and then ultimately believe. You know, I've got a pastor friend, and he's a, he's a super extroverted guy. Like, I'm not. I'm not very extroverted. I'm kind of the middle of the road. Uh, but this guy is really extroverted. So when he, wor- he was working on his sermon... And he said, I want to go to a bar and work on my sermon. Now, when I, when I work on my sermon, I like to shut the door. I can turn on a fan so I can't hear the noise around me. Put in a cocoon so I can be completely silent, uh, deprived of all other, other sensory information. That's how I like to do it. I don't want to be interrupted. But some of these guys, they like to go into bars and coffee shops and work on their sermon because they want to be around people and they want to be interrupted, you know. So this guy, so, so the, point, the point of all this is to say, I'm thankful for extroverted pastors because they give me good sermon illustrations. Um, so this, this, this friend, he was sitting in a restaurant working on his sermon, and this person next to him starts talking to him. And if you, you know, Mark knows this, but if, if someone finds out that you're a pastor, they begin to talk to you about stuff, right? it, moral, morality questions, questions about faith, their problems with the church, so on and so on. And we listen to it, and we smile, and it's, you know, it's, it's totally fine. It's part of what we do. We listen and we talk to people. Well, this woman was no different. She began to talk to my friend. And she begins, first of all, to apologize for her language. This is a common thing that happens, you know. People apologize for their language. And he's like, no worries, of course. Not a problem. Uh, She's talking to him about about what it means to be a pastor. And she starts to say how she hates the church. Like, oh, that's where we're going. Okay. I hate the church and that she's been baptized as a Baptist and a Mormon. And she's mad at God. She's... Mad at God for hell, she thinks all people suck, and why aren't women more loved and represented in the Bible, and that she's trying to be a good person. This is her rant she's unloading on my friend. And then she says this, and this is what really struck him, and it struck me too, this is why I'm telling you the story. At the end of all that, she says, I envy people of faith. And I wonder why God hasn't given it to me yet. Is there a safe place in our churches, in our lives, for people who are wrestling like that. This is, the, this is the place that Christ offers to people who want to believe but just have trouble because of all the things in their past. And I think we all, whether we have been in the church for all our lives or whether this is our first Sunday attending a church, we all need to pray the prayer of faith. We all need to pray the prayer that asks God to help us believe the prayer that this woman essentially is making. Can you give me faith? I wish I had it. The point of this story that we read today and the beauty of the gospel is that we all need to pray that prayer because we all have hurts, we all have doubts, we all have questions, and then we need to relish in the fact that Jesus offers his very self to us that we may have life. So let me pray for us that we would all have faith in Christ. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give us faith, that you would give us faith to trust you. Lord, that you would give us courage, which is kind of like faith, courage um, to be open with our doubts and our questions. And I pray that that all of us would, would look to the church to be a safe place to do that.
Help us to be honest with our doubts and our fears. Help us to to be open with them and share them with people around us. And most of all, help us to experience you through your people, the spirit-filled community of believers, and through the body and blood of Christ at your table. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.